At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back to another motherfucking episode of Kill the Mockingbirds with your host Sean Chris and my partner in crime riding shotgun. As always, brat, brat, ready to go today. I am through the roof. Sean, I've been hyped up for this for a month. You know, you know, hey, I got, <laughs> hey, look, you guys can't see it, but I got it right here. So I guess it's, I've been reading this thing for a while off and on and I go back to and it. And I would say not a month. I would say months. Yeah, very true. <laughs> Once very we true. found out. Yeah, no, very true. Uh, first time I ever got on Gary Wayne stuff was through my good friend, Tony Merkel. And everybody knows we talk about Tony a lot on the show and, and he and I work together, but really I got into this stuff because you did a show about CERN with him and then you did another one about Nephilim and I went and got the book and I was like it sounds really interesting and man all it did was just set me down a million other rabbit holes because your index is huge in the back I think it's like 99 pages so it's got all these other places to go before you know it I'm down a million other places but yes this is Gary Wayne he wrote the Genesis 6 conspiracy um he goes a lot about a lot when it comes to Nephilim and the like. So you can introduce yourself now, uh, Gary, and let everybody know who you are, where to find you, all that. Well, thank you for inviting me to your show. Very happy to be here. And uh, so for people who don't know who I am, I wrote the book that was shown there, The Genesis Six Conspiracy, How Secret Societies and the Descendants of Giants Plan to Slave Humankind. And if that doesn't get your attention if you were to go to my website, the Genesis6Conspiracy.com with the number 6Conspiracy.com. You can peruse through the complete table of contents. And I have a generous excerpt of every chapter on the website. And if you think by reading that, that's just the whet your appetite because there is so much information in all 98 chapters that uh, that just is just, like I said, just sort of a drop in the bucket. But you'll get a good feel for whether or not the titles of the chapters or the content is the book for you or not. And if you're interested in contacting me for some more information, because I'll tend to say things that catch people's attention or perhaps mention a document, there's an icon on the website where you can contact the author. Might take me three or four weeks to get back to you at times, depending on the flow of traffic coming in, but I will get back to you. And, or if you just want to ask a question, the same thing. So uh, that's the best way to get a hold of me. It's also the best way to get a hold of my book because you can buy from the author there and I can do a signed copy to you and I can sign it any way you want. If you just let me know how you want it signed. And I have a page there for shipping for Canada. I have a page for overseas and a page for the United States. So I ship all over the world if you're listening overseas. 
And if you wanted to click over to barnesandnoble.com or to amazon.com or amazon.ca or to the Kindle version, you can do that from the buy page as well and uh, buy from them. It'll be probably a little bit less money, but it won't be autographs. So you have to sort of weigh that out as to which way you want to go. And I'm good either way. So uh, that's the best way to get a hold of me. That's the place to get my book and my new book that I'm hoping to have out early in the next year, which is uh, going to be a sequel to the Genesis 6 conspiracy. And it's going to connect in a deeper way everything that's in the Bible about giants. And there's a whole bunch more in there that I didn't jam into the first book, and about angels, and about how prehistory is so important to understand if you want to understand end-time prophecy. So the subtitle is going to be something like uh, prehistory and prophecies. I'll just extend that into a sentence at the end, depending on what the publisher wants to do. And that's Genesis6Conspiracy.com, right? Like, Yep, with the number six. Go there first because, I mean, why do we want to keep giving money to Bezos and them? You know, give it directly to the get, cut the middleman out. Give it directly to the guy. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they do have a pretty high revenue stream. I'll, I'll give you that. They're buy, and, and they're buying power at Amazon. <laughs> they get the best price in the market by a significant. So, you know, for yes, new authors who might be uh, writing a book, you have to plan your retail price based on what Amazon's going to pay for it. And they have a certain percentage. So make sure that you cover that part off if you're going to distribute through uh, Amazon. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. So uh, today, we're this, sh this show is probably going to go all over the place in a good way, and I'm excited <laughs> about that. But I, I do want the beginning to start with the fairies and the fae, the fairy kingdoms. It's a, it's a part about history that a lot of people don't understand. Because when people think of fairies, they think, you know, the little sprites and, and those type of things. Tinkerbell. Right. And you think about that. But really, uh, I think it's, you know, from, you know, especially the research I've done, it's they're more akin to something you might see in Lord of the Rings or something like that, where it was more, you know, uh, humanoid and, and more of that nature. So if you could explain kind of where that started and, and, you know, where it expounded. Yeah, I, I really like that analogy of the Lord of the Rings because it does encapsulate a lot about the whole fairy culture that is antediluvian or before the flood based and also again show up after the flood again very very similar to bigfoot in terms of a kin sort of a relationship in terms of being uh, let's say beings that were cre created outside the realm of what god had created and by by the fallen angels and or the gods in 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 the polytheist cultures and akin to the to the Nephilim as well. So you have these beings that are a common legacy throughout all of our history, prehistory, ancient history, history, and is prevalent to this day. And will probably play uh, an interesting role in the end time whenever you think that might be. I think we might be in the fig tree generation, but they're gonna have a, a role to play in the end times. So typically these beings, as we understand, fairies are, are grouped into three categories as what I put in the book of Genesis 6 conspiracy, but there's actually a fourth category that I'll mention as well tonight. And typically they are 
the little people, um, and these are tending to be um, good-looking ones. And so you might look at the neroids or the sprites or the mermaids, which are part of that whole fairy um, nomenclature and, and culture, nymphs, beings like that. And you have another group that are ugly ones. So you have good looking and you also have ugly. And so you might notice those as gnomes or trolls or hobbits or dwarves and elves. And there are two kinds of elves. One is the small version that we're talking about now, and then there's the noble elven that is an allegory for Nephilim. So in the Lord of the Rings, for example, you're going to get the little elves, and then you're going to get these beings that are pale white skin, blonde haired, blue eyes with these elven ears. That is a reduced size of what the Nephilim would have been in size, but they would have considered to be superior beings to the little beings, and uh, but still sort of part of that whole violations against the laws of creation that, that, that the gods and the fallen angels did. And you also have mischievous ones, which is the third group, and they're like leprechauns. So, you know, they're playing games with humans. They're doing, they're like part of the trickster spirit of polytheism. So at a lower elemental level, which these all are called our elementals. And you have pixies, brownies, the menahe of Hawaii, for example, I think would fit nicely in there, the imps. You have these people that are talked about in all cultures around the world. So you have them on all continents. Just as you have pyramids likely in all continents, except for, Antarctica and who knows what we'll find there. You've got Nephilim and giants on all continents and all cultures around the world. Uh, you have Bigfoot, Yeti, all the different names for that on all continents all around the world again except for Antarctica. And you also have the little people and they're part of that organizational structure and culture of prehistory and early post-Diluvian history and they all have a specific role. So um, for example, the uh, the ugly ones, uh, they, they're really sort of useful in terms of specific jobs, and it lines up well with the Lord of the Rings. So you have dwarves, which are living in the ground or in the mountains, usually in the mountains, and they make weapons for the demigods, which are, uh, you know, the Nephilim in, in prehistory. And just as you see them making weapons for the different races of people in the Lord of the Rings. And you have trolls, which are typically, they're guarding gateways. They're shown under bridges, by rocks, by caves, and they're typically guarding uh, gateways. And so understand them that they have a role and the gnomes in particular, which is a very important one, handled the technology and the knowledge and the genealogies for this organizational structure. And so you have, as I say, these three different groups that are part of this overall cult organizational structure, and they're grouped into what is called the, the, the elementals. Now, there's a fourth one that is called the salamanders. And there's four because you have four occultic sort of cardinal points of elements like fire, air, uh, and so forth. And so the salamanders are a reptilian being. 
smaller than a Nephilim or a Raphaim that's recorded in the Bible, but taller than humans. And they seem to be very much akin to beings that people see working below the earth in tunnels and underground cities, uh, but again, distinct from, from, from the Nephilim. So just as an opening volley, that's kind of the three groups of the elementals. And I thought I'd probably let you in there because we can go a thousand different ways after sort of laying down the basis here. <laughs> and I like how you said, you know, like comparing like, you know, there's Bigfoot in all cultures. That's kind of what we were talking yeah. about when we talk about like hollow earth, how all, all these different cultures. So when you're getting people that are never met each other, kind of saying the yeah. same thing, that's when you kind of be like, well, this message yeah. looks pretty factual it to does. me. And that's it the other up. thing is, is when you start to connect the dots. You know, once you sort of say, hey, I'm going to take off the brainwashing lenses I've been raised up in, you start noticing things and everything kind of starts to fit together and you understand it much more clearly. So it's not nearly as startling as you get more discoveries as what the first few are, but these are very, very important. And you have uh, little people that are actually recorded in the Bible. Uh, which most people don't know, and it's in the book of Ezekiel, and they're called the Gamadim. <laughs> so as Nephilim, I am as a male plural, usually means ones, and Gamad in Hebrew means a cubit. And a standard cubit would be 18 inches. If it was, we were talking about Nephilim, I might be talking about 21 inches as a royal cubit. So they were considered to be 18 inches high. So these are real little people that are actually recorded in the Bible, and they were part of the warriors uh, working in the towers in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So they're around even to that date, and they're thought to have been put in maybe little sort of portal windows in these towers, and they were shooting arrows, but they're an actual people that are, are, are recorded in the Bible. And you will also have another reference from a New Testament perspective where you'll see the word elements and rudiments. And not every time element is used does it go back to these people, but because it can go back to sort of the elemental parts of the universe or the cosmos as it's, it's also used in the New Testament. But it's also part of the organizational structure that are being that this world is partly being governed by these rudiments and elements. And it goes in, in, in the same verses as you've got the powers or the excusia and the dunamis and many other ranks and orders of angels uh, like seraphim and cherubim and ophanim and all those other different ranks because it's like an army, right? And so you have a regimental order in there and the elementals in that hierarchy would go right at the bottom. And then the salamanders, as a, because they're slightly different, are a little bit higher. And then above that, you would have the Nephilim and their demonic uh, uh, spirits that have left the, uh, the physical body. And then you get into the angelic hierarchy. So that's kind of where the elementals kind of fit in. So if we understand that there is a group of people that have been working for the gods of the Pantheon, or as Christians, we would call fallen angels, um, and that they, some of them have significant access to, to 
real or larger amounts of technology, all of them would have access to at least a certain portion. Like if you're making weaponry, you would have to know all the different things, right? From base level, making knives to nuclear weapons and beyond, right? Because of the knowledge the angelic sure. beings would have had. And so you have uh, other ones that look after the technology as a whole, like the like the gnomes. And the gnomes are part of the fairy lore that fly in flying machines, as they're known in throughout history. We would know them today as space saucers or flying saucers or spaceships or, or whatever. And they come through portals uh, called fairy mounds in some cases. Uh, also, they can be called fairy domens. And a domen, for people who aren't familiar with what that is, is a mini Stonehenge type of stone structure so two walls and a roof and it would sort of go like this and then the other wall there and or it's you could see that sort of structure in the triptych architecture of freemasonry those are three portals that they're putting above uh, usually the doorways um, and, and sometimes as doorways in 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 their in their structures so they come through these portals in these uh, flying machines and these ones uh, tend to kidnap people, and they do it. it sounds yeah, very sounds familiar. very familiar. And for a fortnight, <laughs> as in the Scottish tradition, uh, and that they do experimentations on humans, and they're mm. trying to excrete DNA from them, uh, and or other things because they have a reproductive issue. Just as the post-Diluvian giants, the terrible ones, the erites, as they're called in Hebrew for terrible ones, that's in the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, and particularly identified well in Ezekiel 32, where the Pharaoh is talking to these terrible ones who were slain from the earth that are locked in the sides of the abyss in these prisons, along with their, their parent godfathers, so to speak. So you have... Um, <clears throat> Um, you have the, the, these uh, these these little ones that are controlling this uh, this this great knowledge. You're doing this kidnapping, and they're trying to introduce new DNA and whatever else to be able to continue to reproduce. And so, somewhere along the lines, and typically that crossover is after the flood, where all of these beings don't have that immortal spirit well they may have an immortal spirit because of their procreators but they don't have an immortal body anymore as genesis 6 3 limits all life to 120 years and then they return these people after a fortnight and people don't have a memory of it they're just sort of missing the time is lost sometimes they're gone for longer periods but the general uh, in in the scottish version is a fortnight and only through hypnosis and things like that can they retrieve actually what happened to them and what's interesting is, is in the Scotland lore, they call them the gray neighbors. Um, but typically the larger sort of mm. classification that these ones are, they're the gray gnomes. And I give a couple accountings of that in the book and they have the same look. Uh, and that if you didn't know you were reading an a fairy abduction of these gray uh, gnomes, you would think it was one of those gray aliens or what the Asgard are depicted as in the uh, Stargate series, identical to that. And that is just, to me, sort of astounding that when we're looking at 
these alien beings, you start to sort of ask your question, yourself a question, are all of these alien beings coming from different planets and different galaxies, or are they coming through portals from different dimensions? And yeah. Let me ask you this, Gary, real quick. So you're just right on par with everything that I think. So, so you know, I've been talking about this for a while. So my, here's a question for you. In this other dimension or, or wherever they're going, right? Because there's there's a couple of theories about, you know, antediluvian or pre-diluvian, what happened to the Nephilim because they reappear again. Some people think there's a second incursion. Other people think that maybe they were kind of shuttled away through the portals into this other place, which I think that's both are, are, are very viable in my opinion. Um, do you think, that leading up to the end times, do you think that they are actively building armies or building something for end times by taking DNA and, and, and all that as part yeah, of this? Yeah, I think you could probably take the analogy out of their literature, you know, of the people who are on Earth that are working with them and talking with these beings and the whole sort of organizational structure and the allegory that was put into Star Wars, which is basically this good versus evil in the Clone Wars. So if mm -hmm. you have a reproductive issue, whether or not you're post-Diluvian giants or Nephilim from before the flood that have lost their bodies as well, or these little ones and however other cryptoids and creatures that were created in similar kinds of processes, you're going to need something to uh, replace that body. And so, again, in science fiction, we see all of these movies about moving your consciousness and things like that. And or from the occult, you see demon possession, and, and which mm -hmm. is different than the avatar, avatara effect, because the avatara is receiving the spirit of a god as opposed to a demigod, which were the giants, right? One is a symbiotic relationship for the most part, although in the occult, you can have shamans and very high level ones that seemingly have a symbiotic demonic relationship. Um, uh, I'm not sure how that sort of works out with two hosts in one body if, it, if one's not in agreement with it, which <laughs> obviously the shaman yeah. would be sort of uh, in, in, in agreement with it. And what you understand if uh, from at least for, from a Christian perspective, from understanding what the makeup is, it starts to make some sense in terms of our physical characteristics. So we're taught that there is a body, a soul and a spirit. And the spirit will merge with the soul of this world and the body. So the body and the soul is what they call the oiketarian. And in Jude 1, 6 and 2 Corinthians 5, 2, you see the word habitation in Jude 1, 6 and house in heaven in 2 Corinthians 5, 2, which goes back to the Greek word oiketarian, which is a dwelling place for the spirit. So just as the spirit angels needed a dwelling place for that spirit, in heaven, whatever that is and looks like as spirit beings, they need something to hold that spirit when they come into the physical world, which so they created their own bodies for that. When there's an avatar avatara, mm. you have two hosts sharing that oiketarian, that host symbiotically in a demon possession is where it's not symbiotic. So if you are the bodiless spirits of 
elementals or the bodiless spirit of giants who was created through generally understood of some sort of sexual creation, uh, at least copulation with the giants, maybe something different and something maybe perhaps added in that makes the elementals a little bit different and certainly smaller. Um, but they have terrific gifts like shape-shifting as well that sort of go along with their with their their natures. Um, you have a requirement to have your spirit in an oikotarian. So as we roll forward on the technology to catch up to the days of Noah and the technology that they had before the flood, expect that cloned oikotarian host beings of some sort, whether they're human or you're doing a chimera effect with the technology to create other incredible creatures as what we might see in the Joel 1 and 2 or Revelation 9 war, um, are being prepared for these beings and particularly the ones that are coming out of the abyss in the end time. Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, you're good. Uh, it got me thinking like uh, you kind of addressed it too. Like I was thinking like uh, because we were talking about Nephilim and giants and breeding, but I also thought like what about with everything else as gnomes as well as like you can see like the aspect of man and then covering it up with like um, uh, yeah evolution like evolution and, and and i've always thought like they go in hand in hand instead of evolution it's more of this uh procreating with humans all these different entities that uh would make the human race so diverse where they're smaller they're 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 larger like there's there is physical attributes in humans that we've seen that are unusual like you know that's not the norm and then no one really explains it like you know you have two short parents and then they have this giant uh, uh, uh of a son that's eight feet tall so like i was wondering if you think that any of that dna like experimenting yeah. maybe in our head but the, yeah, to them I mean, it was like procreating. one can imagine uh that there would be an intermixing of these different kinds of uh, creatures um and one can also imagine that just as the fallen angels as they took this physical body would have created a dna with that that would permit their DNA being passed on to whatever spurious offspring that they're creating, um, some of those attributes would follow and you would have a hybrid human angelic being or whatever the mix is on some of these other uh, beings and creatures. So uh, with that being the case and intermarriage being the case, it's very likely there's DNA that gets intermixed throughout the populations, sometimes maybe more concentrated than others. And there's a specific gene that in the occult that they're quite focused on, and it's called the gene of Isis. And Isis is an offspring goddess, um, as with uh, mm -hmm. many other ones that are around you have and, and when I say offspring God, you have gods like Zeus, for example, that is the son of Kronos or Uranus, depending on which uh, trans, you know, translation of and which myth that you're reading in Greek, or you have Enlil and Anki as sons of Anu. And that's a common sort of thing that goes on. And you have the parent gods before the flood and the offspring gods after the flood. Very, very important to get prehistory straight to sort of make that sort of recognition and understand what applies to which epoch. And so you have this mother goddess, the queen of heaven is also the other title. 
as being uh, like the Holy Spirit, right? And and providing knowledge and wisdom that goes uh, with that whole aspect, also understood as Sophia in Gnosticism as, 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 as an example. Um, and again, no coincidence that it sort of shows up a lot in AI and things like that, because that's just sort of the mm-hmm. occult world that, that's working together on it. And so it's this gene of ISIS that gets passed on. And it's the gene of ISIS that, if you look at the word gene, is part of genealogy. And so the people of the royals or of the bloodlines, of the nobility elite, of the larger uh, branches of the royals, because they were all kin and they all took over the top two classes of society, both before and after the flood, and still maintain most of that population even to this day, you have them tracking their genealogies or this gene of ISIS, as they like to call it. Now, how that connects back um, well, you know what, Let's, let me also call it the spark of the divine, so that you know that that gene has the spark of the divine or the spark of the gods or the spark of the fallen angels. And it's that thousand points of light that the occult likes to talk about when they're trying to bring about the new world order. It's also called, and you're going to like this, it's called the fairy gene. And allegorically, the royal bloodlines and the occult track two different bloodlines. One is a female bloodline, one is a male bloodline. So the patriarchal bloodline is the dragon bloodline and less commonly used the raven bloodline. So dragon as in a seraphim angel and raven as a cherubim face of a uh, bloodline. And you have on the female line, you have a... uh, a bloodline that is a fairy line that's depicted by, uh, you know, let's say uh, a, a Tiamat, which is also a seraphim serpentine type god, uh, consort of Absu, as I recall, and part of the parent god pantheon before the flood, who creates all of these really interesting beings like scorpion beings that seem to walk out of the out of the abyss and all sorts of giants and all sorts of other beings i'm I'm down a rabbit hole i'll get back out of this one back on topic now tiamat was part of this tiamat was part of this yes. mother of dragons yes. so line, that, and, and so the okay. matriarchal line bloodlines that goes back to the mother goddess as in isis who was also a serpentine like goddess just as osiris was and the patriarch goes back to, you know, gods of the patriarchal line, whether it's Zeus and Kronos and all the different similar gods in, in those pantheons. And the patriarch of the Nephilim, or if it was a female Nephilim or Rephaim, that was created back to them. But it's an allegory for the female bloodline and an allegory for the male bloodline. And that fairy bloodline is also understood as the elven bloodline you know the elvins of the lord of the rings that we talked about so now we're talking about the white fairies that are an allegory for the for the giants and you can see that sort of allegory where it sort of comes from that tolkien is using the norse version of the uh elemental and little people and fairy uh, legends from as he overlays that onto uh, onto the larger story of the ring lords the ring of the lords which are the anunnaki at nippur where the kings were provided kingship the tuatha de danan 
were also giants both before and after the flood and they were pale skinned they had red hair and hazel eyes as they sort of show up more in ireland and scotland and wales and you have blonde hair blue eyes and pale skin just as you get that sort of um you get that look with the uh the the elves in in, in lord of the rings and so you have this elven bloodline which is the elven also known as the dragon bloodline of the coming Antichrist, at least from how the Western families would want to see Antichrist descend out of. And this elven bloodline is also encoded into a religion that was the religion that I talk about a lot in the book. So you have the Elbigensians and the Cathars, which are connected to the uh, the Templars um, as their secret religion that they worshipped at the top and Baphomet head or an Azazel goat head god type head that they would be worshipping. That goes back to the Elbigensian or the Gens, which is a bloodline of a specific patriarch. And that specific patriarch, as in LB, is is you take that back into Old Norse and into Old French and into in Old English and then back into Latin, it means white, bland, just as the Horim or the Tuatha Danam had this pale white skin. And Jens goes back to a single patriarch. And in this particular LB Jens, Elbion is kind of favored as one of those patriarchs. So you have this elven bloodline that is the bloodline of the royals. And royale is that word that breaks down sort of etymologically as kings of God. Ra, R-O-Y, or R-O-I as it goes back to Old French, and, and I guess still is French today. And E-L, which is the Hebrew word for an angel or a god. And the transliteration is A-L, as we have the modern spelling of it, just as Baal is spelled B-A-A-L. So E-L, A-L is just a transliteration out of some other cultures. I-L-U is another transliteration for the same thing. And A-L-L-A-H is the feminine version of A-L. So it's a standard word throughout the old Middle East areas for a god or an angel. And that the royals are the kings of God or Rex Deus, as they also like to call themselves kings of God as well. So all of this is connected back to the royal bloodlines of the, uh, of the, of the Nephilim at the higher level of the on-earth hierarchy that reports back to Mount Hermon and the Baalim after the flood and to El, who was the parent god of Baal and his parent god, Pantheon, and Canaan, which would be you know equivalent to Anu or to Ptah or to Kronos uh, or Uranus and on and on and on and all the other Pantheons. Let me ask you about El. That does coincide with uh, Elohim that's used. It does. Elohim or, is, or, or, uh, two definitions to Elohim is the plural of El. So El would be a single angel or a god. So El, when capitalized, could be referenced to the God in the Bible. Typic and it is a couple of times done that way. But Elohim is the plural version and the sort of greater sort of nature as God is understood as also being in perfect harmony with the word and the spirit. Mm. Yeah, because there's that verse in um, Psalms 82 where, you know, it, it's, if I'm 
Correct. Elohim judged the Elohim. It, yeah. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, the Council of the Gods. Um, the Council of the right. Gods. And that is the ultimate hierarchy in the physical world that Satan sits over top of and where you would have at least 70 major angels sitting at that Council of Gods on Mount Hermon. Uh, and it's the same gods that are as they're talked about in... Deuteronomy 32, where you have the 70 uh, nations that are being talked about. And the 70 nations uh, are counted as the patriarchs after the flood that are listed in the table of nations in Genesis 10 and 1 Chronicles. And then it goes on to say, and the same number as the sons of Israel born in Egypt, which is which was 70 born to Jacob. And then, and the same number of the sons that were born to Adam before the flood. And <laughs> each of those represent a nation that is overseen by a specific God or angel that would then have a hierarchy within that realm that would report to the higher organizational structure that Satan sits above. And it's a counterfeit congregation to what, God has, there's two different words. When you have the congregation of God used in Isaiah 14 or Psalms 82, they're two different Hebrew words. Yeah, that's that's really crazy to me just to think about, especially, you know, antediluvian time, these gods, you know, or fallen angels, you know, I'm assuming showed themselves to people yeah. quite often and it was a little different. What is your theory on why that it's not that way currently? Um, Cause I've, I've spent a lot of my theories on, on this show before. I'm very curious to what you think of, you know, I first, I'm going to say kind of what I think and I'll let you say what you think. My thing is I think they've kind of learned their lesson and it's more covert now because it's easier to brainwash people a different way than it was before. Um, that's just where I'm going with it, but I'm very curious to see yeah, what I you think. Yeah, I think directionally you're there. I would take it a little bit deeper. So if you understand the concept of parent gods and offspring gods, and in polytheism the offspring gods somehow kill these immortal beings and take over. Um you might kill a physical body. I'm not convinced you're going to kill an immortal spirit because even the giants, when their bodies died, their spirit didn't go to sleep and it wasn't permitted into heaven. So it either found its way into the underworld and away from the abyss or have to wander the earth as wandering demons that are always looking for a place for rest. Um, and they can't interact in the world in a significant way unless they have that oikotarian in another body, which is why they try and possess bodies so if we if we understand that then uh, and we understand that there was giants both before and after the flood and we're not sure how giants show up after the flood they could survive or they could be recreated or it could be both so without getting down too many rabbit holes there's a possibility for both uh, <laughs> i i lean on more on second creation but um we don't have a smoking gun verse in the bible that explicitly says that so I tend to leave that a little that open for a little bit of both. Um, having said that, you have the parent gods that disappear. 
So the parent gods, they're the ones that Jude 1, 6 and 2 Peter 2, 4 is talking about are the t ones at the time of Noah that go, that are put into the abyss prison in the earth in another dimension, right? And so they're not dead. And it actually, they're actually depicted in, in an interesting gospel called Pistis Sophia. It actually describes all of these different kinds of these parent gods. I think they've got a dozen of the head ones that they're describing, uh, either 10 or 12. I can't remember off the top of my head now. I think it's 12, though. And uh, they're described as, you know, multi-headed Hydra type beings, only they have heads, other ones have multiple heads of dogs, multiple heads of, so, and you have single headed ones too that have snake heads, dog heads, ox heads, things like that. So these seem to be the parent gods, just as you've got those interesting creatures in that collection of Ogdod gods on the reliefs in, in Egypt. Most of them are sort of uh, reptilian like, but there's a few other ones that are a little bit different. So they're in the abyss for the crimes against creation and against humanity and the cause of the flood with the creation of the Nephilim and, and the flood comes along. So now if they're removed and you understand that there's a, a host of heaven that's rebellious that we talked about, Hebrew word Saba, which means army and that's that rank and order, you would have other ones that didn't violate those laws step up to take over and would continue ruling over the Council of Gods, a.k.a. the Balim, you know, as after the flood and right. Baal being the son of El and Zeus, son of Kronos and Isis and Osiris and, you know, son of the apparent gods of Egypt and on and on and on around the world. It's the same sort of story. Now, if they create giants again, like their parents did, this time out of spite, and they know what's going to happen, but they're going to do it anyways, out of spite, uh, <laughs> one would think, because um, I don't know why else you would do it once you saw the first set, what happened to them, they would be sent to the abyss as well. So as you look at your question about, did they walk with humans? Yes, they did. They walked pretty with humans, amongst humans, throughout the whole antediluvian epoch, and then early on in the post-diluvian epoch. So in the Ugaritic text, for example, as they talk about the Rapiu or the Rapiem, which is the root Semitic word for Raphaim, for post-diluvian giants, that is used 25 times throughout the Old Testament for the word giant. Actually, Raphaim is used twice as a tribe of giants in Genesis 14 and Genesis 15. The rest of the time, it just surfaces as giant that goes back to the Hebrew word Rapha for a tribe of giant, and Raphaim is, is the male plural. So now you have the, 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 these Raphaim who are the demigods who can go through portals um, back and forth mm. as the gods do. They can do this as they're dead spirits as well, providing they've had the right occult rituals and preparation to guide themselves to do that. And, and, and or unless, for example, they had their head chopped off and lost their life uh, too quickly before anything could be done to put <laughs> things in, in sort of in place for them. That's, a, that's another rabbit hole. I'll finish with the story. They are doing... They are doing rituals to Baal and Ashtaroth to come back. 
and Ugaritic texts sometime between 1400 to 2100 BC would be the range of that. So shortly after the biblical period of the flood, because they've gone and they want them, but they want them to come back to produce more Raphaim because they're not able to produce and they will now have to go produce through humans to continue their bloodline, which they're going to have to do. That's another rabbit hole. But the point of the matter is, is they're gone and they're no longer walking amongst them. And so what I, but clearly I want people to understand what I'm not saying is that all the fallen angels, all the rebellious agents, they are not in the abyss. Only the ones who were sexually, um, proactive, so to speak, and violated laws of creation would have gone to the abyss. So they would have gone to the abyss as well. And so that means there is still this new order that would have risen up in, in the army to rule a council of gods underneath Satan, but are not crossing that line because it makes no sense to do that because they're just going to end up with their other uh, brethren uh, and they'd rather, if they're ha going to have to go to the lake of fire, they'd rather be at least free for that period of time and not in this lake of fire-like prison, because as the book of Enoch talks about, it's like burning fire and ice at the same time. Mm. Wow, yeah, that's that's really interesting to me. So in your opinion, there they're more manipulative behind the scenes oh, yeah. now yeah. Um, as opposed to being more in the front. Yeah. Than out in and the I think at that point in time, you know, you have a lot of the angels and they're not permitted seemingly to take a physical form either, or they're afraid to maybe there would, I would think there would be things that were put down after the second incursion to um, prevent that. And, you know, from them doing that, saying, Hey, You've not shown restraint before. So if you're going to take a physical form, you're going to go in, 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 into the abyss prison. So I think there were things that were that were put, put, put in place, but that doesn't mean they're not interacting spiritually. So that's why I think you see this avatar avatar effect at times. Like and and I and you can get a good example out of that out of Hinduism with like Vishnu and Shiva, Shiva being a destroyer god like Azazel. Um, they both have documented avatar scenarios where they take a human being, usually after they're born. So Buddha would have been, let's say, as an example, an, an incarnation of Vishnu as the avatar into the avatar of Buddha to give him the wisdom to start the new Buddhist religion. And you also have, you know, Shiva, who was interesting. He, one of his uh, incarnations um, with an avatar was with Narashima, who's a lion type god and who the character that uh, Aslan, I think, is based on in the Narnia tales that, as Lewis said, if Christ were to take a form in another galaxy or something in another universe on another planet, he might do it like this as an incarnation. Well, total different concept to what the Word of God did when he came, but that's the, the occult belief in terms of that avatar, avatar kind of effect, and what they mm. believe Antichrist will be empowered with as, as well. So they can continue to, to do that, and we get that biblically that it can happen, 
when uh, Satan enters into Judas to give him the strength required to go forward with the betrayal of Jesus right at the end. So, you know, because he's, he's obviously waffling and he needs that extra power and convincing to be able to do it. So we know from a biblical perspective that the fallen angels can do that. So I think they do that. I think they talk with very high level adepts. But you also have to remember there's the demons that are talking with them. And then there's the elementals who aren't all spiritual but are still bodily form that are talking with the shamans and the adepts of the various polytheist religions around the world. So they're communicating. They're just called, sometimes they're called aliens, sometimes they're called uh, spirit guides, sometimes they're called the Great White Brotherhood, the Celestial Masters. There's a thousand different names for them, but they're all talking about the same spirits that are all working in an organized manner that are answerable to the counsel of gods in Psalm 82. You think it'd be possible, like you were talking about how they were trying to find like the ISIS uh, DNA strand, right? So maybe there's multiple like DNA that they're trying to find. And maybe that's a correlation with possessions and, uh, you know, with strange activity that people go through. You know how people do things, maybe a murder or some kind of crime where they really would never be like that. And all of a sudden, like they change or even the shift of our attitudes and stuff like that, that those people that may have these certain DNA codes that were manipulated with through over time that they're more susceptible to being controlled by these entities? I don't know about being controlled, um, but would, uh, and I won't, won't rule that part out. Uh, I would say it would be more symbiotic. Um, but if you're not aware of that gene, then that could open it up. So let me maybe explain myself. So you also have a bloodline as well. So it's it's both a bloodline, uh, which a lot of people think is the RH negative bloodline. The problem with that in most people's thinking is, is that you can't add something when something's missing. So RH negative is missing the D antigen. So, so if you're going to add a bloodline in, how do you add something that's missing? It's not the bloodline. The blood is a manifestation of the genes. So it's the gene of Isis that produces the, or the fairy blood, fairy gene that produces the RH negative blood in that line of thought. And our, people with RH negative blood tend to be, and I have a great document on RH negative blood that talks about this and some of the features and the percentages and things like that. Um, they have traits that a lot of people don't have. And they tend to be more intelligent, for example. Uh, a lot of them are 140 IQ and up. They tend to have pale skin. <laughs> they tend to have hazel eyes. They tend to have blue eyes. They tend to have red hair. They tend to have blonde hair. Uh, they tend to have more diseases that are associated with blood. They tend to also have more occult experiences and more alien encounters as well. And so... In the occult belief, in terms of the fairy gene, that there is traits that are passed on. And you've heard the hive concept, right? In the occult where they're all sort of kind of one mind and it's kind of a telepathy. So it's similar to what's with the board, mm -hmm. but only more of a sort of telepathy thing as opposed to a... Um, technology thing and that they use that to harness their energy and their focus to accomplish things and 
this is a trait that they believe that has been with them right since the beginning. And they call that, you know, the hive mind. And so in some of the analogy, in some of the taciturn imageries, you're going to see bees, which are thought to be uh, sort of stylized into the fleur-de-lis in some of those shapes and forms. And that they are, they are looking for people that they can communicate, you know, in sort of a telepathic sort of way. What's interesting also about that is that in the Bible, when the Israelites are fighting the Raphaim giants after the flood and their hybrid humans that they were forced to marry and create as a hybrid race separate from humans to continue their bloodline and create more warriors, uh, God provided to the Israelites hornets. Hornets are the natural-born enemies of the bee and it drives them into a state of panic <laughs> and so i think what was going on is the hornets not only can they bite voraciously uh, i mean you know more than wasps can uh, and cause more swelling and, and and reactions to it i think those hornets went after that sort of telepathic sort of bee nature that they think think that they have and probably did and sent them into a state of panic and they could not communicate with each other and they didn't know how to fight without that trait that they grew up with so this is part of that whole ideology of the gene of isis is is that they have this extra power and so people who you know i have a lot of people get hold of me and say hey you know i do have uh sleep paralysis i do have these spiritual attacks i do have more associations with demons and or with aliens and i am rh negative and it's it's just sort of overwhelming how how much that sort of works together as opposed to not so i don't think it's it's necessarily all that coincidental so yes i do think there's a connection there so what about the yeah and go ahead and I was going to say, like, and then that also made sense to me, too, is like um, with the movies and stuff, I think the way they depicted a lot of these uh, entities or like what we would think as myths and uh, fairy tales, you know, from like Lord of the Rings or even like Paul Bunyan, you know what I mean? They've yes. been made into characters that like now seem far fetched. But I just wanted to uh, connect it all together. What you were saying earlier, how every culture kind of has these similar myths or, or stories yeah. or movies well, or whatever you want to call it the superheroes that are based on these heroes of old yep, yep. and some of them have superpowers just as the Nephilim were thought to have more powers than the Raphaim. Some of them, you know, you get a lot of serpent type of superheroes, whether they're good or they're bad. And in typical occult fashion, you have within the world, you know, a duality of good versus evil. So you have, um, good Nephilim, bad Nephilim, you have good witches, you have bad witches, you have white magic, you have black magic. It's sort of a constant that runs through it, let alone the macro level of uh, this, uh, the, these two universal forces that are fighting against each other, the good force and the evil force. Um, so you also have 
uh, you know, some of these beings, you know, these superheroes that have muscles that are reflecting this great sort of size, and some of them are stouter or wider. And stout is a description that comes out of the Old Testament to describe the terrible ones and a lot of the Raphaim. And stout as in wider, but not fat. So it's related to words of strength as, as it goes back to, to Hebrew and that they had a two to one height to width ratio, just as Og's bed was in similar sort of ratio as nine cubits by four cubits, um, sort of reflecting that and that they uh, were much muscular. So they were like a WWF wrestler or uh, NFL linemen and were very, very mm. nimble. So these were huge yeah. and wide and strong. And then you have, as I talked about, um, the, the Zabalba and the Tengu of Southeast Asia. The Zabalba come out of the Kisha Maya, the Popol Vuh, and the Tengu are all through China, Southeast Asia, and Tengu are also a group of gods, and they produce bird-like warriors, kings, and priests. And they're the ones who brought the martial arts uh, uh, teachings to the Eastern people. So you have a lot of superheroes that are like Batman and Robin, bird characters, right? And in the book of the Popol mm. Vuh, there's a specific a specific branch of the Zababa who are owl-like described uh, demigods. There's one that's called Kamazots, um, which is only mentioned in a couple of lines. And again, I have a document on that for people if they want it, uh, and on the Tengu. So a lot of the things I have, I have a document mm. on it. I supply it at no charge. So just name it by topic. It may take me a while to get back to you. I do this on a lot of shows. That's why I have such a backlog of emails. But I, but I will send you the document <laughs> if, if you want it. Kamazots is described as the house of bat in the Zababa. And if you oh, wow. Google Kamazots, and I don't know how it gets on the internet, but it's interesting that the outfit that the modern Batman wears is that picture when you Google Kamazot that comes up. And it's just over and over and over. Wow. And then in the superhero area, you also get the technological superheroes, which is starting, to, which reflects the level of technology that they had before the flood and the types of things that they could create including the Greek term chimera for these giants and superheroes. And a classic chimera would be King Hababa of the Cedar Forest, which is on Mount Hermon. And this is after the flood. And Gilgamesh and Enkidu, uh, two uh, post-Diluvian second creation giants, um, with Gilgamesh being the son of the goddess Nin, and in some versions, Ninsun, and his father was Lugabanda, king of Uruk, a human male. Um, he's two-thirds god, one-third human, so is Enkidu, and so is Atnapishtin, and all of his family, who is the Sumerian Noah. So the Sumerian Noah uh, epic of Gilgamesh or flood story is the survival of giants on an ark, not humans. <laughs> and you have, so you have a survival right. story in that uh, story of, of the epic of Gilgamesh with Utnapishtim and his family. And then you have a second creation with uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu for creation of giants afterwards. But King Hababa is, he's got this chimera-like um, 
look to him. He's got all sorts of different animals that are part of his body. Uh, so this is this is a common uh, understanding amongst uh, uh, the you know sort of the doctrines and standards of prehistory as we as we have it come rolling down. And then you start to see more of these superheroes that are having multiple types of sort of animal type of parts to them as they start to progress on this. And they're now starting to call them like gibberim, which are the mighty ones. And they're just sort of being more and more in your face about who these superheroes are actually representing. So the heroes in Greek mythology were the offspring of the gods and a human female or a goddess and a human male. And they were called demigods, which are defined in the ancient understanding as the offspring of a god and a human female. Same thing as the Nephilim and the Raphaim. Let me jump to the Chimera thing real quick, because you brought that up a few times. And I want to talk about you know pre-flood. And I'm with you. I think technology was far greater than it is now pre-flood. Um, do you think that chimeras were the copulation between fallen angels and animals, or do you think it was some sort of DNA testing or maybe both? Like, what, I think, what do you think? more DNA. Um, it would still take a reproduction of a counterfeit spirit. So it may be, a, a, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of processes that, that, that are involved. Um, because they still have to have some a life spirit in there. And so, but definitely, I mean, unless you're going to, you know, create several different hybrid beings among several other beings and then copulate with it, you're probably inserting another aspect somehow, some way, which is interesting because when, when I mentioned the term, when I mentioned Gilgamesh in the Epic of Gilgamesh epic, I said two-thirds God and one-third human, which means you could have one-third God, one-third human, one-third something else. It also means that you might be able mm. to split even more somehow, some way. Typically, we understand a demigod is 50% God, 50% human. And I think that also starts to, in terms of how that splits out, starts to separate the hierarchy. How much of that divine spirit is in them? Right. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's very interesting to me because especially when you're talking about the first, uh, you know, the first level of Nephilim, the, the after the first incursion, I mean, those were the ones, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, very yes. serpentine features, Um Glowing yep. eyes is what I've, yep. you know, read as well. Uh, they were very, they looked a lot like their fathers. They did. <laughs> and if you Google even after the flood, because I would think the original ones looked similar, may not be as big, may not have as many gifts, certainly had shorter lives from a physical body perspective. Um, you have Akhenaten, which is depending on the chronology, 1200 BC or 1400 BC that you're looking at, that's a thousand years after the flood, biblically, more than almost 1500 years or a little bit more using secular chronology. And if you look at him, he still has that serpentine look. He has that protruding chin. 
those high cheekbones, those large wraparound eyes that glowed that would light up a room and that elongated skull. And they wore these fancy hats to cover their big, ugly skulls. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, 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 the serpentine ones were the most common. And they ran government and they ran religion. So you would have your kings depicted as serpents and a lot of the priests depicted as, as serpents, just as the gods were depicted as serpents. That's the seraphim. That's the uh, fiery serpent-faced six-winged dragon angels. So when you get that imagery around the world, and as they take a physical body in this human world, they would pass on that look, the dragon creator gods out of um, China. Uh, you have the Naga gods in uh, India. You have the gods like what's you know, a quotal with the uh, plume serpent gods or the feathered serpent gods, and they go all through uh, First Nations in North America and South America as well with similar types of gods. You have this serpentine imagery that's in all cultures that were dominating the gods in terms of the governance, and you also had um, some other ones too, though, uh, less prominent. So both before and after the flood, you're going to also see lion-faced uh, reliefs, mm. and they're called the Irma in Sumeria and a couple other names, and plus you have reliefs of the same thing that are in uh, Egypt. And you have gods like uh, Nergal in Sumeria, which was one of the war gods and was a lion-faced god. And you had Sekhmet and Mahis and even bass to a certain extent that Black Panther is based on, uh, although more of a cat, but cat line, kind of the same sort of understanding coming out of prehistory as to oppose our nuances of it uh, in, in, in the modern world. And so you have those kinds of uh, beings that, that weren't being necessarily kings, but they were great warriors, right? Just as you have Anubis, for example, as a jackal god. And by the way, Nergal is also in the, in the Bible. So that's why I use that one as an example. And Anubis was a jackal or a dog god who actually created warrior uh, Nephilim as well that we would know as the dogmen or I like to call dog Nephilim. And in the time of Anubis, he had produced so many of them that they lived in a place called Dog City in, in, in Egypt called Sinoopolis and Sino... Uh, I'm trying to think of Sinopol. Can't quite come up with the technical term for dogmen, but it's that Sino, and then there's another piece of the word that is the you know the sort of trans-border connection to the name of Sinopolis. So you have those ones, and then we have a god of the Avim, one of the Raphaim tribes after the flood, who was worshiping a god called Nebaz, who was a barking god. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you can't make this stuff up. It's, 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 and so, I, and I always like to try and take things back to the Bible. So it seems that there was other types of creations as well. They just weren't as high up in that hierarchy for whatever reasons. Yeah, that's 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 crazy to me. So let me let me get I know, back. Cephaly, I guess I like it is. <laughs> before yeah. before the flood. Um, so when you're talking about these different uh, features, right, in, you know, you get the dogman features and you've got different ones. Is that 
because their fathers or the fallen angels look like those things? Or was this some sort of DNA testing that caused that? Um, you know, because we know that the seraphim did have the serpentine yep. features, and when they uh, procreated with with the female, the uh, human females, they would have those serpentine features because of that. What about these other ones you're talking about, like the lion heads and the and the dog heads? Sure. And that so, type of thing? and also know that the Anunnaki, they're depicted in Sumerian reliefs, have wings with a human head, and also. Same mm. picture, but only a raven or an eagle or an owl type head, depending on how you want to describe that. Mm. So the cherubim, who we mentioned, have four faces. And they're depicted with a man's face, uh, an eagle's face, a lion's face, and a bull's face. And when you look at the various types of cherubs that are created in the Middle East, you have like the Sphinx representing a single-headed, probably lion face, or could have been a human face, as some people argue. You have, but Sphinx goes back in terms of its etymology and its glyphs to a lion, so I kind of think more lion. Uh, you have the, uh, mm -hmm. the cherubs that are in um, Syria and... The northern part of the Middle East, they tend to have more of the bull or the ox, however you want to describe that. And then you have this eagle face that um, can be uh, also part of some different, not as well sort of viewed or seen, but they some of these gargoyle and some of these uh, sphinx-like uh, creatures have an eagle's head as well. So... What that's telling us in my interpretation, my speculation is, is that when they took a physical presence on Earth, they didn't show up with four faces. They would pick one. Okay. And if they took that form, when they were in the physical world, they could re reproduce what they looked like. And I think that's where a lot of the other ones come from. That makes a lot of Anub sense. Anubis would... And Anubis I would be an exception, like, and he's a different rank altogether. I think. Mm. Uh, when we when we hear a lot about talking of the Nephilim, we always hear like a pale skin, right? In the in the 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 colored eyes. Now, do you think that that all the Nephilim were always pale, or is that just the descriptions that we're getting from the the the, the readings that we that we see? Like, was there multitudes of, or were the Nephilim like, or most Caucasians in the world, Europeans like, some kind of form from the Nephilim? You know what I mean? Like, or is it just like there's yeah, many other types? Yeah, I think if we look at some of the ancient sculptures of these giant heads down in Central America, we get. A look of different types of races within them. So I think it would be fair to say that there would be different skin colors. You get a book that I know you can't totally rely on it, but it's the lost book of King Og that tends, if it's accurate, would sort of descend back as part of the book of the Manichaeans, which uh, either used a Sumerian account and then combined the original book of giants of Enoch together, um, sort of to give people the, the the history that seems to be with this this book that it talks about. They have many different kinds of 
skin colors and types of looks in them and a lot of them are the same names that are that, that are used around the world for a lot of these giants so i think that's a distinct possibility we also know that uh seemingly the aryans as they show up after the flood are also part of the four aryan uh indo-european or indo-aryan groups that have a language that is inexplicable. It's not part of the other languages that typically are attributed with the dispersion of the languages out of, out of Babel. So th this tends to be seemingly the, the language of the giants, either somehow that survives through survival or is retaught to them by uh, their demigod uh, godfathers. And so you, you have... Um, Within that group, as they show up after the flood, and I talk about this extensively in my, in my new book, you have the blonde hair and you have the red hair, you have the hazel eyes and you have uh, the blue eyes. But one group, and the group that goes down into Persia that would uh, have the bloodlines that uh, the ancient Persian kings of the beast empire of, of, of prophecy took their bloodlines back to the Aryans and are the same people that settled in the Indus Valley and having the same Zoroastrian religion that morphs into Hinduism, they are black-haired, thick black hair, thick black beards, and very much akin to how Nimrod would be described or Gilgamesh is depicted, and also part of the Syrian king. So there seems to be another distinct one race mm -hmm. of, of them that are also pale skin, and only their hair color that is different. And that would be the bloodline that also produces the Hyksos kings. Again, same hair colors, same traits, and that the Merovingians also, by their depictions, would take their bloodlines back to. And if they could shapeshift and change their form, they could also try to maybe look similar to the people they are trying to and, and you know, kind of get under their wing and try to get them their support and looking like almost not similar, but something extravagant that would make somebody like we talk about a lot. You would be like, this is God, right? Like if you're you're in yeah. 200 B.C. in the middle of nowhere and this huge yeah. giant being and they have powers, you're yeah. like, yeah, well, this is what God is. And I wonder if it changes form to kind kind of like well, for its audience um, almost. The salamanders are thought to be able to, as a reptilian beings, to be a chameleon. A lot of the different little people are thought to be changelings as well. So that seems to be an attribute inherited from the gods and their creation in many of those polytheist traditions. It's not clear that the Nephilim inherited that or not. A lot of people believe that they did. And so when you see the modern sort of mythos about the royales hiding their reptilian nature because they have that shape-shipping capability, that is where that would probably fit in. I can't, mm. I don't have any evidence to suggest that they hide their uh, looks because they have changeling cap capabilities or they just had those looks diluted over time with the generational intermarriages um, uh, with with uh, yeah. with with humans. Yeah, I that was curious about that too. I'm glad you brought that up, Sean, too, because I have thought about the Nephilim bloodlines and if the giants could also shape shift. 
Um, I guess, too, uh, and, and not to get real crazy here, but I've also thought about, okay, so giants did copulate with humans yes. physically how did that take place? You know what I mean? That's something I've wondered for a long time. And then people have asked me too, what, what do you think? Well, about yeah, that? cause we're talking about the size, right? And yeah, post diluvian giants are thought to be smaller than antediluvian giants. So Gilgamesh okay. is described as 11 cubits and he's the king of Uruk, sixth generation after the flood, son of Lugobanda. And so 11 cubits as a royal cubit would be over 19 feet tall and over 16 feet mm. tall as a standard cubit. But he was a king. And just as Josephus instructs us to measure the giants with as a royal cubit, I kind of think in ancientology, that's probably was kind of the doctrine. And he was four cubits wide. And so he would have been seven feet wide, <laughs> minimum six feet using 18 inches as a cubit. Right. And Og was in that bed. He was smaller than Gilgamesh and he was Raphaim as opposed to the Aryan that we're talking about. Um, so uh, maybe it's the uh, the dark haired ones are the ones that survive because of the epic of Gilgamesh and that sort of whole connection. Um, so it's 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 interesting then. OK, now, if we imagine that, then how big were the original ones? Some people say, and I tend to fall into this category, 20 to 40 feet tall. Some people say as high as, you know, 500 feet because the Book of Enoch says, you know, 300 L's and the Aramaic version says cubic. So we don't know how big an L is, but if it was even a foot and a half at a cubit at 300 to be 450 feet tall, yeah. I think L is an unknown measurement and cubit is a corruption in the Aramaic version. Um, just my sort of thoughts. And so I would make them smaller. And I would say, could they be bigger than 40 feet? Sure. Just as Amorites were described uh, as, and the, those are hybrid humans, they were described as being like the cedars of, of Lebanon, which were the giant trees of Mount Hermon that grew to be 40 to 50 feet round and 100 feet high. <laughs> so, um, mm. but I don't think they were quite that big, but I think they were probably 40 to, you know, 20 to 40 feet uh, uh, before the flood. And so both before and after the flood, if they procreated with humans, how did they do it was the question. Well, we see reliefs because of size of all of their parts. Let's just sort of leave it that way for people who may not be following what we're talking about without being too descriptive. <laughs> um, uh, you have uh, reliefs in Egypt and elsewhere where you have these occult rituals, um, fertility rituals. And you have these giants that are depicted on them, and they have semen that they're pouring out from some sort of vial and into human females. Mm. So I think that's how they initially did it until they created hybrids that were large enough to physically copulate with them and reproduce that way as well. Biblically, we can make a good case for these hybrids. Uh, so you have in Genesis 10 and First Chronicles, you have the 12 Canaanite tribes. Three of them have names that we can associate as part of the table of nations. That's Canaan, his son Heth, and his son Sidon. Then you get nine families or peoples, and you can take that back to Hebrew to mean um, species or a different kind, 
which is very odd language, and it's probably not translated. You could translate it as family, but it seems to me there's something more going on. So I might, you know, say it's it's more of a different race <laughs> than uh, a family of the Canaanites. And they don't have a patriarch. So we have nine patriarchless nations, and they are, you know, include the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Hivites and all of these other ones. And so the reason why you don't have a patriarch name there is because their patriarch was a Raphaim. And mm. we have two names that we can take back as a patriarch of Raphaim tribes. Rapha is thought to be the patriarch or a name very similar to that, uh, that produced the Raphaim. And know that the Anakim are giants. The Anakites, I like to call them the Anakim. And in Deuteronomy 2, that uh, when it says the Anakim and the Horim and several of these other ones are giants, it's the Hebrew word Rapha or Raphaim. So they're a different tribe of the post-Diluvian giants or a branch of the, of the Raphaim. The patriarch's name for the Anakites are given to us in um, the book of Joshua, and his name is Arba. And not only was he the greatest Anakite, he was the patriarch of, as he's called. He's not listed in the table of nations. And then you have none of the giant nations, wow. whether it's the Avim, the Horim, the Hivim, the Zamzuzim, the Zuzim, the Emin, and on and on and on with all these different names. They don't have patriarchs. They're not listed as a people. You don't have patriarchs for other nations that in the second book, I will also take back to a patriarchal name um, of, of these tribes, including the, the nine tribes. I'll give you a name that I think was the patriarch's name for, for those tribes, because you can trace that back patronymically and patrially, because all of the tribes had eponymous names. They're all basically the same where you name it after the uh, patriarch of a tribe. And you can take those names back mm -hmm. and link them to, to those different tribes that either aren't listed in the table of nations or are uh, patriarchless in the table of nations. They're called, interesting enough, and I'll cover this in the, in the book, new book as well, they're called the Shazu in, in Egyptian history. And they include all the different tribes that we're talking about in terms of, of the Raphaim. And they're also called the Amau and the Shemau as they come out of the Eastern tradition of which the Hyksos were also related. So they had hybrids as well. And that we get hybrids listed in uh, the Bible where you have the scouts that are going into the covenant land for Moses and they bring back the reports and they tell of, of three Anakim kin, kings, Sheshai, uh, Ahiman, and Talmai, as well as a list of peoples like the, uh, like the Amorites, which is one of the patriarchal nations and, and several others uh, that are taller than the Israelites but distinct from the Anakim. So we get down to Numbers 1333, where the scouts who are embellishing the report, they're saying that the Anakim are the children of giants. That's not the word Raphaim. That's the word Nephilim. Nephilim only shows up three times, twice in Numbers 1333 mm -hmm. and once in Genesis 6-4. 
and it's because they're trying to scare the Israelites. The size of these giants they didn't feel was enough to scare them from going in. So they said the Anakim were the sons of the Nephilim as opposed to the Raphaim. And so that just testifies to the veracity that the Israelites knew how much scarier their antediluvian giants were from the post-diluvian giants. And then you have the same thing reiterated in Deuteronomy 1, 40 years later, where Moses is recanting the story, talking about the Anakim kings, and then talking separately those people that are taller than the Israelites. So two distinct sets of giants. So the, the hybrids were six to nine feet tall by most accounts that are recorded into history. And the uh, the Raphaim were somewhere between 10 and 16 feet tall. Uh, and again, the dark-haired ones might have been bigger. And if we get one of those, like, the superhero or uh, mutant type of yeah. attributes, like the Hulk, right? Yeah. Like, you get big and small, you can... I, I think that a lot of the stuff that we see is... Um, like depicted properly but it's put into a framework of fiction so that we'd be like oh well that can't be you know like it, it's put on like this is just a show you know and like that's not real life but i do think you we see in real life there's like i mean nba players like you know what i mean i'm not saying that they're nephilim uh bloodline or or have that but there is taller people especially when you read back in history that people were like more of a not short but smaller maybe like you know a five foot to like five foot eight yeah. or five foot nine like that was like a, a a predominant height and now we see such a wide range of different heights i i wonder what that really does and 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 i think it is hard to fi actually figure out how they procreated because that's just us all speculating because there's not there's is like not specific like you said like a smoking gun verse or yeah. something that like really shows us but i think that there is a lot of evidence today to kind of show that they yep. did somehow well, procreate or could there's have another way too, um, sexually. So that just as I mentioned in, in Greek and theogony will mention this as well, is you can have a, a mother goddess procreating with a um, human male, right, to produce giants. And, and they did in, mm -hmm. in Greek mythology. And you can also have True. female giants, just as Timna, for example, biblically, they're also called the, the Tyanides uh, out of Greek mythology. And so uh, Timna is the, is the daughter of Seir, who is the Horim chief of the chief of Edoms, with Seir going back to the Hebrew word satir, which is another rabbit hole, but, uh, you know, a, a goat god, <laughs> yeah. shaggy goat god. And so Timna is a female Horim, or a female post-Diluvian giant, who marries Eliphaz, the son of Esau, brother of Jacob, who changed his name to Israel, right, and didn't get the birthrights. And they're going to create the hybrid uh, nation of the Amalekites that are probably the ones that are depicted also in the report in Numbers 13.33 as well. And that these are the Dukes of Edom, and you're going to love this, I think. And Duke goes back to the Hebrew word Aleph. And so occult writers like Lawrence Gardner and many, many others, but he's probably the most famous, says that the elven bloodline in part takes their name from the Horim giants who through the Dukes of Edoms produced the elven bloodline and a, and a hybrid elven bloodline through Eliphaz 
and a team now. So if we understand both sexes, gods or giants and humans can procreate, then if the, you didn't have semen being poured in to a human female, you could have a human male copulate with a, a giant. Um, probably not all that pleasurable for the female giantess, but <laughs> just saying. <laughs> but that's another possible way. <laughs> Oh, for sure. Yeah, that that does make sense. I just really feel like there is a lot of uh, evidence of that. And, and when they say pre-flood and, you know, after flood, like when we go way, way back, right? When we talk, we've talked before, like, what is a day to God? You know, it says it takes seven days to make the earth. What is a day to God? Now, can these Nephilims and a lot of these like other beings, have they been like inhabited on earth prior to humans and that's why maybe there's this kind of like a uh, feud type of thing going on like you know because now that people know because i learned like we had a show the other day where we were talking about you know like kind of the councils of angels and the levels of angels and you don't really think about that in layman's you know you just think oh an angel's an angel you know like and and the same thing goes with these beings that they have their own purpose and what they do now, do you think that they inhabited this earth first and then like then we were brought into, you know, like whatever that seven day period is. And then that's kind of a strife of where we've kind of had this little like because it seems that they don't like us as much yeah. as humans like or yeah. they're jealous or yeah, they have so something against it's a, it's us. It's a really, uh, really good question. And it can be a very large answer. So I'll keep my be as brief as I can. So we don't know how old the earth is. We don't know how old the earth is biblically or secularly or through polytheism. We don't know exactly how that how old it is. And so a lot of people, they say, particularly in standard Christian dogma, that the earth must be 6,000 years old because the lineage goes back to Adam and you add up all of the patriarchs and all the dates and you get about 6,000 years. But that's all of that tells you. Doesn't tell you that that's when the earth was created. That's an assumption and a dogma that I think uh, might be misleading. Now, you're talking about a day to the gods might be a little bit longer, and that comes out of the book of First uh, Peter, where a day is like a thousand years, right, to God. And so, okay, if that's the case, mm -hmm. then, you know, you've got seven days of creation there and maybe each of those are a thousand years and you have life that's starting before uh, the humans in day six. So you get a few thousand years there and, you know, a thousand years sometime maybe after day seven of the Sabbath and then the Eden account. Okay, that's a possibility and that might, that might be true, but it still doesn't give you enough time. And... But if you start to say, wait a minute, and I'm a contrarian, and I'm a Christian contrarian, and I like to verify things myself. If you say to yourself, and I believe this 100%, that the Bible is not in contradiction, and that the Bible does provide you additional information that you just need to sort out and, and, and sort of lock in, um, you cannot have Adam's creation in day six because the two accounts have so many differences and you can only arrive at one of two conclusions the bible is in contradiction and therefore not the word of god or there's another creation that is a separate creation for adam created with the spirit breathed into him for a special commission 
So sometime after day seven is Adam created. We don't know how long if that's the case. I have a great a couple of documents and, uh, and a comparative chart for people if they want to get a hold of me on this. Um, so we do get some time there, but I still think we kind of need more. It's not that you can't have an angelic rebellion and perhaps dinosaurs that are misdated and we're being lied to and, and all of that. I get that, but it makes more sense that the world might be a little bit older than that. So, and again, also have a great document on what I'm about to talk about. Um, and I did a two and a half hour presentation at uh, one of the uh, uh, Steve Quayle's uh, uh, True Legends uh, conferences. Unfortunately, it was at the start of COVID, so it had to be all video, but people can get it. And I litigate this in great detail. You can translate Genesis 1 in two different ways. One that the world became void and formless or the world was void and formless. And that the word void and uh, formless, tuhu and buhu, uh, describe a world that isn't finished as a world that was destroyed, ruined, as opposed to being formed all at once, right? And that somehow this world became destroyed. And that in Isaiah 45, it talks about God does not create anything incomplete and not to be lived with. And that goes back to the Hebrew word tuhu again, and it's the same sort of meaning. He didn't create it void and formless. So somewhere between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, the short story is that there could have been a destruction of the original earth. And that that destruction would have been right down to the foundations of the world. And the angels were created before the creation of the heavens and the earth. So if that's the case, and you line both of those up, as Psalms 104 talks about, and that's a great Psalms to overlay on Genesis, it's because it also has the creation of the angels. They were created before creation. So that in Job 38, 4 through 7, you have the morning stars and the sons of God, sons of God being in Genesis 6, um, dancing and singing for the new creation of the heavens and the earth. That would be a better period for after that original creation, Genesis 1, when God originally creates the heavens of the earth for the angelic rebellion, and the weaponry and the power would have destroyed the earth so that it had to be renewed. Just as Psalms 104 says, when you have, uh, when God sends his spirit, and as shown in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit hovers over the void and formless earth. He renews the earth, right? So there's a renewal of the earth that is talking, being talked about, as well as a creation of the earth that was before that. And that if you were to, just, to just destroy the earth down to its foundations, then everything on the waters would collapse down into a state of chaos in the earth. So that with the renewal of the earth, you have uh, the separation of the waters that are talked about in the first six days, which will form the firmament, which includes the sun inwards, however far that distance is. And then everything outside of the firmament is the rest of the, the rest of the universe. And in Exodus 20, it talks about God creating the heavens and the earth in six days. But heaven is described and defined in Strong's 
um, concordance as being the place where God lives as one definition inside the firmament is the first heaven and the second heaven is outside the firmament. So three different words that are used for Shema or Shemaim for the heavens as the plural um, that you have that word heaven. And in Genesis 1, when the f waters are separated to create the firmament, God says that is heaven. So you have everything supporting itself throughout the Bible that it seems more likely that the angels rebelled before. And in that war, the earth was destroyed and then a renewal of the earth. And if that's the case, we have no idea how old the earth is. And so... I, I think that's correct, man. Yeah. I agree yeah, with that a lot. I love it. Yeah, I've actually been <laughs> been saying that for a little while now about that that early piece between verse one and verse two of Genesis. You know what what yeah. happened there? Because clearly, this you know rebellion happened before. Yeah. So you know a lot. There is so, so much yeah, time so me, that we don't know. And, and what is time? Exactly. And yeah, what is time? Know. Really, it's something you know? in the physical world. <laughs> because you know, like right. Because <laughs> seemingly time in the spiritual world is a whole different dynamic and God and, and Jesus are alpha mm -hmm. omega. So they're even above time altogether. So it's a construct of some sort. So now if you look at a couple of other aspects of this older kind of creation, you have these angels who rebel and you might have these things like dinosaurs living in that period, which are very reptilian like and made it maybe after the image of the seraphim angels. And now we're being told that many of them have had had feathers, just as you have the plume serpent and the feathered <laughs> serpent and the six wing. So it seems to fit a little bit more there. And so after that rebellion, after that destruction, after the renewal of the earth of the six days, then Adam is created as a resolution to the angelic rebellion. So at that point, at the creation of this being that's created below angels, who through their destiny is going to choose, for those who do so, to have the ability to be raised above uh, raised to be immortal, to be like angels, even though we have human fathers and the angels were created by the, the word of God at God's command, we'll be created like them. And so we're even going to judge, as, as the New Testament tells us, the crimes that these angels, the fallen angels, did against humanity and against uh, creation, and that the fallen angels, in reaction to understanding what was about to take place, we're saying, we're going to stop this. We knew we could never beat God. And even though we had intimate knowledge of God, we know how powerful he is. They rebelled anyways, and they know they can't kill God because he would, he's the God most high and immortal. So they were looking, I think, to have a realm on their own so that Satan could rule a world, be like God, and have his own world, right? And you see that reflected, let's say, in the Doctor Strange movie, with the, you know, trying to have the Earth as this negotiated treaty um, in the lone yeah. universe yeah. that is governed by the Dark Lord of the Universe, right? If, I, if I've got the, uh, the wording right on that. And so they were trying to do that. But once 
they saw that God was creating humankind. They knew something was afoot to, to prove their rebellion as being wrong and to prove them guilty, and they did not want to see humankind succeed. So starting with Satan in the Garden of Eden, he starts on his first revenge. Then the next revenge is, <laughs> is you know, turn Cain against his father and his brother and his mother and create a race that they can continue to corrupt and then make ready with that bloodline to intermarry into with uh, with the fallen angels to create the next revenge of the giants. And they have these revenges that I talk about in the book, you know, all the way through. But the thing they didn't know and didn't anticipate, as the book of Corinthians talks, talks about, was the resurrection. And we know that from what the Bible says, because it says if they had known of the resurrection, they would have ensured Jesus was not crucified. Yeah, yeah, I've actually I've actually heard that. Uh, I want to jump real quick um, to uh, the um, first incursion. So my thoughts are that that the first incursion and as they trickled all the way down to that 10th generation when it really was bleeding over in the Seth bloodline yeah. at that point um they did they know that jesus was coming and did they want to delude the bloodline to where it wouldn't be perfect because if i'm correct god told noah that he was perfect in his eyes and he didn't mean that he was perfect yeah. in his soul he meant that his dna yeah. was perfect uh, i think that's uh, that's uh, essentially correct and that not only was noah and his three sons and the three wives pure of spirit but pure of uh, dna corruption uh, that there was no intermarriage there, and that typically the Sethites took their wives from within the Sethite bloodline, although in this case they may have taken them from outside, but there would have been from ones that weren't. So how you make that fit scripturally and connect and cement it is through the word corrupt. That's used in the description of what happened before the flood where the whole earth was corrupted. And there's violence and all this other stuff, just as is talked about in the days of Noah in the uh, prophecy sign that Jesus provided for us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So what's interesting about that word corrupt, it says the whole earth was corrupt. Not the sea, the earth, the land, right? <laughs> Everything that's on it. Yeah. And that word is the Hebrew word shakath. And what that word means is not just corrupt, but decayed, ruined. Words like that, um, degraded. Something happened to all of the plant genome. Something happened to uh, most all of the human DNA. And something happened to uh, pretty much all of the animal DNA. So when God leaves it to literally the last part, it's last second, let's say that he can, he's taking the last of the non-corrupted people who are spiritually uncorrupted as well onto the ark. And he does something else that reflects that. He doesn't have Noah go out and collect every kind or every species. God selects the number, whether they're clean and unclean, 
and the best representative pairings of those uh, species that are uncorrupted with uh, mm. DNA corruption and calls them to the ark. I think the whole thing is speaking, the whole Genesis flood story is speaking to that, just as the preamble to the flood story is Genesis 6, 1 through 4, which is the creation of the giants. And you have Noah's lineage bookended at the end of chapter 5. And then starting in verse 5, you get the commission of Noah. This whole story wraps around how the angels use the demigods they created to lead the world into destruction. And had they not, had God not interceded to have humankind have a second chance so that all the names that were written in the book of life before creation would have a chance to choose God, have that opportunity. And so, and again, you reach that threshold again at Babel. Unless God steps in to do something, the fallen angels are going to win. But God knew all along exactly what they were going to do, and he knew when exactly he was <laughs> going to step in right from the beginning. And when you were talking earlier about, um, uh, you know, the rebuilding of the earth, it really made me think, like, what was the original earth, what we call, like, we, we talk about hollow earth, you know? Is that where the original, and then it's covered up? Like, you know, is there partial like that's just uh, things that we float around. I just wonder that. And then having, you know, Nephilim and and different entities still living there. Or maybe yeah. there's also a prison there, you know, like maybe yeah. that's part of the abyss. Or, sure. So uh, I think there's two components away. to this. I think there is things that happen within the physical earth so that we see a lot of cities around the world um, that have more to their components below the ground that are above the earth and whether or not, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I don't have to go through it, through all of them. Um, but there's many cities that are basically underground cities and they're built for long-term survival. Uh, so we don't know mm -hmm. when those were built or why they were built. Um, but that's part of where some of these beings are still living from what we understand in a lot of these tunnels. And, mm -hmm. but I think the underworld is in a different dimension. Because typically it's understood that we, when you're going mm -hmm. into the underworld, you're going into it through a portal. Um, that has mm. sometimes with these doorways and sometimes through caves. So just as on Mount Hermon, right at the foot, right by the, the Pan Temple, you have uh, the, you know, the gateways to, to, to Hades, right? Um, and... All yeah. through occultism, you have these places where you can go into the underworld. So there's more than one tunnel, one route in there. And so, but Haiti seems to be, or Sheol, as it's described in Hebrew, or the other world, uh, many, many different names of the netherworld that it's described uh, seems to be in a different dimension. And the abyss is located there as well. Um, so when you get the term hell in English translations, that is a significant 
piece of misinformation or misdirection or disinformation. When they use the word hell, they're combining three terms together into one that ought not to be. You have the abyss that tends to be conflated in with hell. You have uh, Sheol or Hades as being conflated. That's, you know, where the abyss is located, but, the abyss, but Hades is much bigger than that. And then you have the lake of fire right? Separate place altogether. And so it would be better to have a Bible that translated it exactly from the right word out of Greek and Hebrew. So we know into English and and separate that. So not everybody agrees with me that it's in another dimension, but it just seems to be more consistent with all of the evidence. And particularly when you're trying, when you're looking at CERN and that they're trying to seemingly to get into other dimensions Mm -hmm. uh, for a lot of reasons, one to, (laughs) you know, maybe get people out of the abyss. One would be maybe to, as what Antichrist will do uh, in the end time, storm heaven as, as the war is described in, um, in Revelation 12, when I was talking about Antichrist doing that, which works in conjunction with Revelation 12, that's Daniel 8 versus Daniel 8, um, verses 8 through 10, um, um, that works with that. And so that's into another dimension as well. And then you also have uh, this idea that they're they're working with quantum mechanics in um, combination with that, and it's to hit multiple universes at multiple times, and they're searching for something else. And this is kind of a show all of it its own, but one of the things that they're working for is something that's listed in the Vedas and the Upanishads, uh, where a lot of the quantum mechanics scientists sort of got their idea from, and it's the basic for quantum mechanics. It's the Atma particle or the Atman particle that has uh, is invisible, that merges with particles that can be measured, and it contains all of the knowledge of the universe that through quantum entanglement sends it everywhere instantly. So they need that to tap into as part of the offering for godhood and the mark of the beast as part of that uh, implant system that is going to merge many technologies into one. Mm. And to your point about like portals and stuff, I think that's also perspective, right? Like uh, if we saw like a cave, someone going into a cave, which is a portal, someone would may think, hey, they're yes. going into the yep. center of the earth, right? Like, you know, your perspective of what you're seeing is going to yeah. kind of put that into the yeah. framework in your mind of like, oh, that's a cave. He's going down and yeah. not realizing that like, maybe that's you know, a portal. I think that when we see, you know, spaceships going into the ocean, I don't necessarily think that they have their bases in the ocean. They may have an entrance right, to yeah. wherever they're going in there. Um, but when mm-hmm. when these things come out of like ferry portals and mounds and things like that, I mean, they're not going. They're not going into the earth. I don't think. I think they're they're going through. And you know, yeah. There's an interesting site at the foot of Mount Hermon called Gilgal Raphaim, which is translated as Wheel of the Giants or Wheel of the Spirits. Um, a few other names as well. There are over a hundred mini domains there. This was the site of the Raphaim that we talked about earlier in the show in the Ugaritic text that went through portals. I mean, that just can't be a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think they use portals to, uh, 
maybe the Raphaim or, or Nephilim used portals to tra- transport themselves quickly across. I think you so. Know, the yeah, uh, to wherever they wanted to go. There's probably the many places you could. Mm-hmm. I mean, the technology would be designed to have some sort of guidance system to it, or maybe there's certain ones that just went to certain places. But I would think they would have had the technology to go anywhere that that they would want on that. Maybe it's like Star Trek, yeah. you know, beam me wow. up, Scotty, you know, one, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one portal to another, you know, like yeah. you have, like you said, the Stonehenge type of thing, you know, you have one here, you have one on the opposite yeah, side of the earth. Also think about this way at, at the Tower of Babel that um, that story is told in many languages, Aztec, Kishimaya, uh, Sumerian, and Akkadian, and Akkadian, um, the Tower of Babel is Babalu. And uh, it had a different meaning than confusion of language as Babel. They looked at it as Babalu or Babel as we would have it as E-L and I-L-U as God. And then Bab meant in Cadian gateway. And so Nimrod, I don't think, was just threatening to go up for show to shoot arrows into the sky somehow to kill God if he needed to. I think he wanted like Antichrist will because he was an Antichrist archetypical figure for the post-Diluvian world. I think he had ambitions once he freed the uh, the angels and the Nephilim and whatever Raphaim had gone there from the abyss by that time to storm heaven as well. Yeah. Oh, man. And yeah. I, I've been saying that the uh, Tower of Babel wasn't necessarily some sort of tower that they were building up either. It could have been more of like a stargate or a portal system that they were trying to break through. And uh, so, I mean, you translate that as, as a, you know, gateway of the gods. I mean, that's like, you know, the stargate kind of, it's like a wormhole. I mean, you're, I mean, (laughs) so that's, that's everything that it sort of opens up for me and that those buildings and the shrines that they built to honor their gods they had probably a practical technological aspect to it as well. And so I think he was trying to recreate what they had created with the pyramids before the flood. And I think the pyramids were antediluvian, just as we get a picture of the great pyramid on the, uh, the records that come out of, uh, Menes and Narma. It's, it's just shown on that, that, that famous, uh, a tablet that that's it's 52 and a half degree or whatever the degree slope it is on the pyramids that that go up and so we have images of that well before the dating of 2300 bc that um secular scientists like to, to give us and they're thought to be even older than that and if it had all of that yeah. antediluvian technology then it was probably designed for much more than just looking at or for or for rituals Oh, yeah. Well, man, you came, you conquered, and you blew our mind, man. There's a lot of information that, man, I, I didn't know about that. And I know that we could go on forever. Joe will never stop, man, because we talk about this. <laughs> this is like his main, this is bread and butter right here. You know what I mean? But I really liked uh, uh, everything. But before we get out of here, can you please remind everybody again where they could catch everything yep. and uh, find your book? And Yeah, so the best uh, place to connect, to, get, with you? to connect with me are you know basically two places. One is through Facebook. That's the only social media i'm on until 
I can see things sort of sort out properly as to what might be better avenues. And you can get a hold of me through Messenger or on my timeline, or you can join my group, uh, Gary Wayne and the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. I try and spend uh, a fair bit of time answering questions all through those aspects, plus through the website, the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. That's the Genesis 6 with the number 6 conspiracy.com. And on there, there's a contact the author button to ask for some of the documents if you want some of that, or ask me a question, or just send me some comments. And I will get back to you. It might take me a little bit, but I will get back to you. And you can also buy a copy from my book off the website. Get a signed copy. Uh, or you can link over to barnesandnoble.com from the buy page or amazon.com or uh, amazon.ca and then over to the Kindle edition. It's also sold on most online bookstores, on some stores. It's distributed by Bookmaster. So if you did want to support your local bookstore, which I encourage, they can order it through Bookmasters out of Pennsylvania. And we'll have all the links uh, to the Facebook and to uh, your website uh, and to get the book. Because I suggest you get it straight from uh, Gary himself, man. I, I don't like that middleman stuff. Go straight to Gary and get the book, man. Get an autograph, man. You get, you're going to know that he saw that you paid for it. He's going to give you his little autograph right there. I think that's the best way to go. And then, you know, you can follow us at Operation Kill the Mockingbirds on Instagram. Kill the Mockingbirds on Telegram and Vent. Van Tesla music on Instagram and all link trees, everything like that, and Sean Chris music. And don't forget to check out Joel Thomas, Sean Chris, Quan Duke on all all streaming platforms, whatever one you like the best. Go find that one. Stream our song. Put it on when you're going to sleep. Put it on repeat. Just let it keep going. You know, turn the headphones down. You won't even know, man. You know, you help us out. We help you all. That's how we do it. Yeah, and uh, you know, all this Nephilim talk and this like redheaded giant thing this redhead nephilim thing i'm starting to think sean that jen saki has got some sort of nephilim bloodline going on with her there uh, i think i found a new strategy a new strategy coming up mm. i will i will you know hey i got a little, a little red going on right here too so uh <laughs> so anyway i had a blast thank you so much gary for coming on um this was incredible um for sure awesome thank you for Thank you for inviting me and invite me back anytime. Yes, sir. Oh, for sure. And and we're going to end like this, man. We're going to do Joel Thomas head in the clouds. You know how we do it here. Wake the fuck up or get woke the fuck up. Blah, blah. Bird killers.
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.